The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. During the war, Union soldiers sang the plaintive song, When This Cruel War Is Over. When the war ended... What happened to those soldiers? There was the Grand Review in Washington, and then what? The usual story has been that they went home, put it all behind them, didn't think about it for 30 years, except when they joined the Grand Army of the Republic to lobby for pensions. And then in 1913, they joined hands with their brothers in gray for a photo op at Gettysburg. That version of the veteran's experience is subject to a well-researched and passionately written challenge from Brian Matthew Jordan in Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. We'll talk with Dr. Jordan tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as is usually the case from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, where we hold down a portion of the University of North Carolina system, but not speaking for UNC or ECU or anybody else, just me. I'm the only one in the building, I think, at this point, and I know my guest will do the same for his opinions tonight. 
It is summer now, the uh, on the academic calendar at least. It's May of 2015. There is a new coffee house, donut place opening in the last two days in Greenville for those interested in local color. It's very quiet around here. The students have gone. Summer term hasn't started yet. The faculty have vanished likewise. Uh, still, the email blows up constantly. Assess this, report that, reconcile the budget, replace the admin who just quit, line up the external reviewers for next fall's tenure candidates, and so on. But even with all that, it's so nice to have it quiet around here. This was the first week on Civil War Talk Radio that I finished reading the book before 6.30 p.m., the night of the show. First time I've done that in about two months. Uh, a great pleasure to have time to uh, go through a book with some care. Well, for those keeping score from last week uh, on the academic front here at East Carolina University, uh it turns out uh, it really is true when we hire adjuncts to teach outside the department, they count as if they were department faculty and increase our quota of hours required to teach, but the hours they teach don't count because they're outside the department. Uh, so the score is madness one, consistency zero as we uh, move ahead, but I'm now in my uh, last 94 days as official chair of this department and I find it easier to shake my head at that sort of thing and figure most working people work in a crazy workplace. Why should we be any different? And so we're not. On the bright side, we get to teach students. We get to talk history. Uh, this week, I got to speak to two groups of retired uh, people, a faculty group and a volunteer group, uh, about the Civil War. One of them had invited me to talk about the outbreak of the Civil War, and I was just going to wing it, but then I thought, no, they deserve better, and I spent three hours punching up an old PowerPoint and adding new things and revising it and getting it all ready to go. And when I walked in with my flash drive and said, so, you know, where's the video set up? They said, a video? You mean, you mean like a slide projector? And I realized I probably should have called first about the, uh, the video. So I had to paint brilliant verbal word pictures instead. Uh, then I ended up showing the presentation to the other group, which originally had another topic in mind, but I said, hey, I put this together last night. Someone's going to watch it. So it's been fun talking Civil War with people and uh, looking forward to doing more of that later this month with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, getting ready for the annual This Hallowed Ground trip, uh, leaving, I think it's Sunday the 23rd, is that, a, is that a Sunday? 24th, perhaps. Uh, yeah, 24th through the 31st through the following Sunday. If you haven't uh, made plans for that week, it's never too late until we actually get on the bus to sign up for it. Call Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Come and join us. It looks like a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun in the past. I'm looking forward to it. It used to be run by Matterhorn Tours, and that tour operator retired. Now we've got a new group running it. And I say that I get no commission. Uh, there could be three people on the bus and I'd still get paid. So I'm just asking or just telling you about it because it's it's really fun. I always look forward to seeing uh, people involved in Civil War Talk Radio. If you're a listener anywhere around the Virginia Battlefields area, uh, keep an eye out and uh, maybe we can run into each other. 
You can find out who's going to be on the show in weeks ahead. Usually at this time, I tell you, go look at the website, impedimentsofwar.org. This week, there's no news because I haven't sent Mark Gaffney any news. I'm not sure who we're going to have on next week. Maybe we will not even have a live show. Not certain. The following week, we will not have a live show because I'll be on the road with the this Hallowed Ground tour. We'll be back with live shows after that for sure. We'll do some more uh, in the month of June. And I'll let you know who those are and let Mark know at the website as soon as we get them set up. Thanks to everybody who's donated funds to help purchase books here at Civil War Talk Radio. You can do that through the website. And uh, otherwise, uh, your book purchases there support. Uh, if, you, if you buy books for yourself, that purchase supports the website with the click-through. So when you hear about something like tonight's book or any other book, go to impedimentsofwar.org, use the Amazon uh, button there, the image of the book, and go on and buy your book that way. It helps everybody out. So this week we are talking about what happens uh, in the moments after the war, it does not, I think, violate the Charter of Civil War Talk Radio to have a subject that begins begins rather than ends in April 1865, because the subject is, uh, as the subtitle of the book says, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. The uh, author of the book is Brian Matthew Jordan. The full title of the book is Marching Home. And we'll find out more about it uh, with Dr. Jordan. Brian, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, good to have you back on. You were last on a few years ago. You had a book on the Battle of South Mountain. Uh, interesting transition from uh, uh, a, a battlefield book, uh, a battle book that, uh, I'll, I'll say it was a not a traditional approach, but a traditional topic uh, that, that many people have written about to something that really hasn't been explored. How did you uh, make that make that move? Well, the, Marching Home was uh, my doctoral dissertation, and it's really a book uh, that, I mean, I think the genesis of the book goes back some 15 years. Uh, when I was a, a child and a, a Civil War buff, I got to know a man in my hometown of Akron, Ohio, uh, who had passed his own childhood uh, crisscrossing the Midwest uh, in search of some of the last survivors of Lincoln's armies. And uh, this man, uh, Gary Dillon, and I became uh, fast friends, and he would regale me with stories of taking the train up to Duluth, Minnesota, to interview Albert Wilson, who, of course, uh, became the very last survivor of the Grand Army. He knew uh, Albert Wilson. He knew many of the last um, survivors in the Midwest. And he made this haunting remark uh, to me that I think um, never really left me. He said uh, that there was, there was an aura about these men and that one got the sense even after so many decades uh, that they'd never really put the war behind them. Um, and, and I don't think I ever put that remark behind me. I uh, went off to graduate school, discovered that historians, you know, quite unlike Gary, scarcely knew Union veterans, scarcely knew Civil War veterans, um, and that there was this yawning gap in the scholarship. Uh, most historians have kind of accepted this notion that veterans had slipped into this period of hibernation after the war, uh, that they had turned rapidly from, from the struggle, that they hadn't really thought about it. 
um, and and really embrace this kind of halcyon view of, of veteranhood that I um, set out to explore and and ultimately to challenge. Well, it, it's a fascinating approach. The fact that you. Uh, your connection to Civil War veterans, the one generation removed, really comes out. I, I mentioned a moment ago, I was talking to a re- group of retired uh, people yesterday, and one of them, who I'll guess was, was certainly in his 80s, said that his father's somewhat older brother had been in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And I did the math and figured out, yeah, that, that could be possible. Uh so, someone's this man. In other words, his uncle was in the war. We're we're not right that far away from it as as we we imagine ourselves to be. Sometimes that's, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, uh, Bruce Catton, uh, you mentioned uh, his work in your book. He talks about growing up in Michigan, and the phrase that sticks with me from his writing was that. Uh, after the war, the rest of the, the lives of these men was basically waiting to die. That, that uh, mm-hmm. They would never do anything as dramatic and important as those four years. Mm-hmm. Did, did that come out in your research? Absolutely it did. Um, you, you get the sense that these men really did feel that. I mean, that so much drama and emotion have been packed into this surreal space of, of three or four years. Uh, that nothing else that they would ever do um, for the rest of their lives would ever be meaningful or, or as meaningful as, as the Civil War experience. The best example of that are, are the diaries uh, that I would encounter that would, you know, of course for the war years be perfectly documented and perfectly appointed every day. And then you get to the diaries for 1865 and 66 and 67, and they're blank pages with the exception of those anniversaries of the battles or the anniversaries of the wounds or of the enlistment or of the discharge. Um, and you really get the sense that these men measured the rest of their lives on a, a calendar uh, that was really created by the war itself, um, which is just incredibly poignant and, and tragic, I, I think. Um, so I, ab- absolutely, I think, you know, uh, Catton's, Catton's phrase rings very true. And, and Catton himself, I think, was one who, you know, was likewise captured by, by these men. The, the title of his autobiography, Waiting for the Morning Train, is, mm-hmm. is, is taken from that, that very poignant um, view of, of veterans up there in Benzonia, Michigan, um, passing time idly by and, and, and swapping their, their reminiscences of the battlefield. I remember uh, Maris Vinovskis' uh, essay, had, had Social Historians Lost the Civil War, mm-hmm. came out in the 70s, uh, I, th- I think when I was an undergraduate, and there was, things have, have gone back and forth in that regard. Uh, a lot of Civil War writing then was very much the, the drum and trumpet traditional battle books, uh, and it was hard for to to make the argument in the academy uh, to write more about the Civil War. There was a strong uh, resistance against military writing in general. And one of the arguments I recall making that echoes what we're talking about here is is just what you said, that, that to these men, these four years were what mattered. If you're going to be a social historian right. and write about ordinary people and what they care about, they right. cared about the war much more than about race, class, or gender abstractly. They cared about those things very 
intently, but as they were reflected in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm arguing with you, but I think I'm arguing on the same side. No, I, 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 I completely agree. And I, I think um, a lot of the recent debates that we've seen in, in both of the professional journals and in Civil War studies, I mean, I kind of think of them as something of a tempest in a teapot where, um, of course, military uh, studies matter. And of course, the, the war years matter. But, um, you know, there's a way that that scholarship um, by its by very definition, by its very definition, has to um, inform what we do as, as social and cultural historians, and I think veterans are uh, the, the perfect example of that. Uh, we're going to take a break in a couple minutes. Uh, let me just get caught up with you. Last time uh, you mentioned this was your dissertation, uh, uh, so you're, and that was at Yale University. That's correct. Uh huh. That that, uh, that allows me to remind listeners that uh, I have a degree from Harvard University, uh, <laughs> something I only only get my money's worth once a week when I say it on the show. Uh, so I got that in there. Uh, but uh, what are you up to uh, when not writing this book these days? Well, I um, I just finished up uh, teaching at uh, Gettysburg College uh, in the Civil War Era Studies program, um, and I will be uh, moving to a, a new position uh, in the fall. Um, and I'm uh, in my writing life, uh, just embarking on a big new project, a, a major new life of, of Benjamin Butler, uh, who, mm. of course, has his finger in every major controversy in the, the Civil War era, and uh, is a great character. Again, that will um, kind of project my work into into Reconstruction. So I'm I'm having fun with him so far. Is is there a standard biography of Butler right now? The, really, the best uh, biography um, is Richard West's um, book, Lincoln's Scapegoat General, which appeared back in the mid-60s. Um, there was one kind of popular attempt at Butler in the early 90s, uh, but really he hasn't had a biographer, a serious biographer, in, in about 50 years. So it's That's amazing. long overdue. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. absolutely. Every time you know people say, what are you going to write about? It? Hasn't it all been done? And then somebody says, no one's done a biography of Ben Butler and all this time. That's great. Well, we're going to take a short break. We will come back. We're talking today with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. Uh, it's published by uh, Live Right, which is a subset of... That's got to be a bigger press. Uh, division of W.W. W. Norton. Uh, it, it's a very handsome volume, nice uh, nice quality of paper and large line spacing. Uh, very good for veterans' eyes. Uh, a, a pleasure to read. Brian, when the you start the book off appropriately enough with the grand review, everybody who's read about the Civil War knows the two major Union armies uh met in Washington, D.C. for a great parade at the end of the war. And how did that work? And, and what happened when it was over? They all just walk off the end of Pennsylvania Avenue and go straight home? What 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 literally happened at, at the very end of the war there? Yeah, well, the Grand Review uh, is it's just a, a major military spectacle. Um, in excess of 200,000 soldiers uh, will, will participate in that parade, May the 23rd and 24th, uh, 1865. Again, um, down Pennsylvania Avenue between the Capitol and the White House, beyond a, a wooden reviewing stand uh, that was built uh, for the new president, Andrew Johnson, and for members of his cabinet and other uh, military officials. Uh, and the, the traditional view of, of this, when historians have written about the Grand Review, they've either seen it as, as kind of the epilogue, uh, to the Civil War story as the victory parade, um, as this, this great moment of, of homecoming of, of civilians um, coming out and, and uh, recognizing this unpayable debt. Uh, or they've, they've written about it in a, in a less positive light um, with the exclusion of African-American troops from, from that parade. Uh, I take a, a very different view on the Grand Review. I look at it from the, the, the veterans' perspective. Uh, from the soldiers in the marching ranks. And the first thing I point out is the, is the context uh, of that parade. Uh, the men uh, quite literally march over bone-strewn battlefields en route to Washington. Some of them, especially in the Western armies, uh, down there with, with Sherman, will make the longest uh, march of the entire war uh, to get up there uh, to Washington to participate in this grand review. Uh, and they pass over these these macabre sites, Spotsylvania, Chancellorsville, Cold Harbor. Um, they they see the, the you know the the casualties uh, and the cost of of this war, and that's the immediate context. Then they arrive in Washington, of course, which is still uh, swaddled in in black mourning crepe uh, for uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, martyred just five blocks uh, away from where the parade will extend uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue five weeks before. Uh, and they're marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, and almost to a man, they write in their diaries about what an empty exercise this is, um, about uh, what a farce uh, the parade uh, really is, that they feel palpably the, the absence, 
not only of, of Abraham Lincoln, their beloved father Abraham, but of, of those guys on either side of them that they had fought with um, that were, were not able to participate in this parade. Um, that, that rendered it uh, rather empty for them. And it's, it's the first major uh, moment where civilians and veterans uh, really come in contact with one another. And the civilians um, crowd Washington. There's not a hotel um, within miles of, of Washington that has vacancies uh, for the two days of the parade. The civilians are out there cheering and, and um, uh, bedecking uh, the soldiers with, with floral garlands. Um, and they expect that this is the, the tidying up of, of the war and that this is going to be a simple um, exercise in reintegration. Um, and it's, it's the first moment where that great chasm between the battlefield and the home front is exposed. Um, and they, they think of it as a funereal march. And it's, it's with a great sense of uncertainty of, of where this, this path is headed. Um, they're, they're just beset with anxiety about um, what actual homecoming will look like. How will they be received at home? Will they be able to restore their, their domestic relationships? Uh, what kinds of fathers and, and husbands and, and sweethearts will they be uh, once they come home? All of these, these maddening questions, let alone the political questions, uh, right, uh, which are beginning um, uh, to be raised in Washington by President Johnson, uh, the pardons, the rumors of another rebellion, uh, all of this begins to, to encumber them. And quite literally, you go through the records of, of the St. Elizabeth Hospital, which is the government hospital for the insane in Washington. Uh, there are, are at least a dozen men who are pulled quite literally out of the ranks of the Grand Review and escorted off to that hospital for the insane. Um, well, this, again, is you know an unending war. Now, the, the soldiers, I mean, there, there are some compelling bits of evidence there. Uh, one could say if you have a body of 100, 150,000 uh, men, some of them are going to be insane uh, mm -hmm. anyway. But but a bigger question uh, about the the reception that they receive. I'm thinking back to the 1980s. Uh, I was living in Chicago in 1984 or five, I think it was, and there was a parade held for Vietnam veterans. This was almost 10 years after uh, the, the fall of Saigon, and, and almost 15 years after the last ground troops had left Vietnam. But there was a national sense that we had not done well by the veterans of that conflict. They had never received a grand review. They had never received a welcome home. They came home as individuals, never had a chance to be acknowledged by the public. Uh, the Civil War veterans, uh, and, and so this parade was held, and they were held across the country that summer in different major cities uh, as a belated way to recognize these, these soldiers as as soldiers, not as individuals, but as units, as, as military groups, the Civil War soldiers got that. They got the Grand Review. Mm -hmm. uh, you're saying that didn't make them, uh, that wasn't the solution. That didn't make things easier for them. The thing that's, that strikes me most uh, about Union veterans, and the thing that was most surprising to me uh, in the course of the research for this book uh, is the extent to which Union veterans believed that this war was not over, uh, that their military triumph on the battlefield had not um, settled the ultimate fate of the Union, or 
that this you know war while settling the fate of human slavery and the relationship perhaps between the states and the federal government um, it had raised this host of, of other uh, questions put other questions on the table um, and in what these veterans want um, most immediately is, is recognition uh, that this war a is not over, but B, just um, you know what the war cost them uh, personally, emotionally, psychologically, uh, and they wanted the space um, to be able to talk about that. Uh, we know from from more recent wars that uh, narrative is is very important to veterans, especially making that that transition back home, finding a, a respectful and a receptive audience uh, for horrific uh, war stories is a crucial part of of healing the traumas of war. And Union veterans, well, they had the, the parades, uh, and they were all over that summer. The church bells were tolling. Um, there were the banners and the, the civilians lining the sidewalks. Um, but that was about it. Uh, civilians wanted um, to move quickly beyond the painful issues of the war. Uh, they embraced, I think, almost immediately after Appomattox, uh, the spirit of sectional reconciliation. Uh, they believed that there was no unfinished business uh, and, and for Bill Yank coming back home, again, this is, you know, and it's astounding to me because we have a, re- a really rich literature on common soldiers, which is argued, I think, quite persuasively that Bill Yank has this keen understanding of what the war is about. He, he comes to understand uh, the relationship between union and emancipation, and that steals him somehow for the storm of battle. And yet... Um, you know, we kind of lose that story after the war is over. I think it's that keen understanding of what he had fought for and, and the, the determination of, of Confederates, right, to, to wage this treasonous rebellion against the United States. Their understanding of the dimensions of that conflict uh, created a lot of problems for them in the peace because they understood just how fragile and tenuous uh, the war's accomplishments were. And, and that, that was the source of the anxiety. That was the source of this sense that it's now over and, and you northern civilians, you know, you haven't done enough yet to, to realize the storm that we've passed through. So the, the traditional view, I mentioned in the opening of the show that, uh, and it goes back to Gerald Linderman, uh, that the veterans, Union veterans, didn't say anything. Uh, just went into hibernation for, for 30 years. Uh, your your research could not be more directly contradictory to that. Uh, they they, right. they felt strongly about this, and they were not silent about it. That's right. Um, uh, anything but. In fact, um, you read uh, civilian newspapers, and um, you find a lot of evidence uh, to, to support the, the notion that northern civilians wished only that, that veterans would hibernate, right? They saw uh, the, the Grand Army of the Republic as this sinister organization uh, that was decidedly un-Republican, right, un-small-r un Republican. This is still very much a society that expects the classical small-r Republican citizen soldier to come back and, and pick up the plow. Uh, and, and these men come back, and not only are they uh, very articulately uh, describing what they fought for and, and why, um, but they are, you know, uh, in search of, of ways to impress upon the public uh, the dimensions of, of the conflict. They, they'll stage sham battles on town greens. They will, uh, you know, yearn for, thirst for the, the sounds of, of battle, which, you know, 
uh, far from being disillusioned by them, they were rather comforted by them. Uh, it was the prospect of peace that was that was alarming uh, for so many of them. Uh, so I really think that 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 hibernation thesis. While there there are no doubt some that you know that were disillusioned, and, and Linderman captures um, some of them quite brilliantly. I think. Um, I think hibernation is not the the paradigm here. Hibernation is the exception uh, as opposed uh, to the rule. So one way many of them express themselves uh, is through through writing. Uh, the amount of veterans' publications is, is interesting. Uh, in particular, the, the National Tribune seems to me underused as a source for mm-hmm. learning about uh, uh, the, the veterans and about the war itself. Can you talk about that publication? Yes, and the National Tribune um, is the major northern veterans newspaper. Its um, principal editor was George Lemon, who was a wounded uh, veteran of the 125th New York. Um, it was headquartered in Washington, D.C., and uh, it really became a space for them uh, to kind of swap uh, not only battle stories but also veteran stories. Right? How did you negotiate this labyrinth uh, that was the Pension Bureau? Uh, how did you uh, acquire that prosthetic limb? Um, where, where was the nearest place that you could uh, join the Grand Army of the Republic? Or uh, how did you uh, learn about the, um, the, the regimental or brigade reunion that was going to be held in the next town over? The Tribune was the most important, and it was the largest, but it was only one of, of, of quite literally dozens of, of veterans' papers. Uh, almost every major northern city had a veterans' paper. Um, some states had, had papers, even individual regiments, which during the war would have regimental papers, would continue those publications on uh, through the post-war years. Um, but literally, it's a, it's a flourishing uh, industry among uh, veterans, and it's it's their space where they, um, you know, craft narratives and make sense, and 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 craft and find meaning uh, for their for their injuries, um, and and really get the sense of recognition that they felt they lacked uh, from civilians. The one question that came up, I'm looking at the clock, so I don't want to ask a giant question and run out of time, but let's go ahead. Uh, the question that, that kept occurring to me as I was reading this was, how much of this is local to the Civil War, and how much of this is uh, the permanently unbridgeable gulf between those who have seen combat and those who have not? Uh, there, there's You can go on YouTube and see uh, a song by Emily Yates, uh, American soldier, veteran, uh, called Yellow Ribbon, where she says, take that yellow ribbon off your car. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really want to help us, listen to us talk, listen to the stories, mm-hmm. uh, which is what you're saying the Civil War soldiers are saying exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't just have a parade, but listen uh, and and respect and, and try to understand what we've been through. But ultimately, can that ever be done? Right. Um, I think there there are universals here um, in that relationship between veterans and civilians. At the same time, I think there are some specific things we can point to with the Civil War experience. For one, uh, it's the, the unprecedented um, nature of this problem, uh, right? Uh, the antebellum American army is 16,000 men. There will be more than 1.8 million Union veterans that will return home. 
uh, and that need to find a way to, to reintegrate to civilian life. Um, this is a, a huge problem that, uh, and it's the first major social problem, by the way, that the federal government faces after the war. And despite all of the stories we have about the, the federal government emerging from uh, the Civil War stronger and more centralized, it's ideologically and infrastructurally ill-equipped to deal with the problem. Uh, there's no VA. Uh, the Pension Bureau, as it exists, is is a, a, a labyrinth of, of red tape that is is more often than not skeptical of veterans' claims. Um, so there are those specific um, contexts. There's also the, the, the crucially, vitally important context of sectional reconciliation, uh, which Union veterans aren't unilaterally opposed to sectional reconciliation or, or to national reunion. And indeed, for, for many, that's you know the, the entire point of the war, right? I, um, I'm very taken by the scholarship of, of Carrie Janney and Keith Harris and, and others that um, you know have, have kind of made that distinction for us. Um, but at the same time, you know what they what they want is a, a measured uh, reconciliation, um, the measured reconciliation that will allow them to to heal through the telling of of stories, uh, and and that that specific context uh, weighs on the, the Civil War experience, uh, as does the, the fact that the late nineteenth century is a is a place. Uh, that's you know built on on laissez-faire individualism, right? Uh, these men come back and they are not um, society is not willing to attribute their problems and their uh, tribulations uh, to service in war or traumatic battle experiences. Uh, they're much more willing to to attribute. Uh, difficulties of readjustment to individual character flaws or even to um, moral injuries as a result of participation in the war. Um, we like to think about the northern home front as as unified and um, as as you know the, the kind of the glue that that held things together for union victory. Um, and yet we forget uh, too easily, I think, that you know this is Union veterans are returning home to a population that that has has resisted the war, that has has rioted. Uh, that's reached no consensus about emancipation. Um, all of these things, I think, are, are very specific um, things that we can build upon, uh, kind of a universal chasm between um, the battlefield and the home front. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Janney and others who've written about, uh, or Janney and others who've written about the Union ideology of the troops, and uh, uh, Barbara Gannon's work comes to mind. Sure. Uh, you know the one cause, as opposed to the lost cause, or, or Robert Hunt, who writes about the Army of the Cumberland, uh, mm-hmm. that these soldiers maintained uh, a, a strong political view, as, as you said at the outset, that the war was not over and that the cause still had to be fought for. Uh, and in that sense, I suppose that does distinguish it from uh, from subsequent cases of veterans. Uh, you also mentioned the VA, and I'm picturing had there been one. In 1865, there might be somebody from the 24th Michigan still standing in line somewhere today, uh, <laughs> waiting his turn yeah. uh, to be recognized, unfortunately. Uh, well, we'll take another short break. I want to come back and ask ask you about uh, uh, regimental histories. Uh, it's a, a topic I've always been fascinated by, and we'll, I, I'm curious to get your your spin on where they come from and how they fit into this. We're talking today with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. We've been talking about uh, both the parallels and contrasts with uh, other veterans' experiences uh, in American history and the uh, certainly the, the contrast with the traditional interpretation many historians have offered of the veterans' experience the idea of passive uh, veterans or veterans calmly adjusting uh, for many years, uh, not caring to write about their experiences till later. One form in which veterans did write about their experiences in the North and, and in the South to some extent uh, was to put together histories of their regiments. And I have always been struck by the the, uh, the power of the affiliation with the regiment that so many soldiers seemed to, to carry. It was their their home away from home, their identity, the, the unit they reunited with and that they wrote about. Why why regimental histories? Why not brigade histories or company histories? Well, there, there were a few um, brigade uh, histories and a few company histories. Uh, but again, the regiment is really the the source of identity uh, for for most of these soldiers. They're you know drawn from local communities, and it's another way to um, kind of position themselves uh, in in the local uh, community and to to draw the contrast between those who had served and and those who didn't. And they got to work on these things almost immediately. I mean, too often I think we think of regimental histories as, as kind of a product of the 1880s and 1890s, and there was no doubt a, a spate of them uh, published during those decades. But uh, there, are, there are accounts of, of men quite literally beginning to write uh, before the Grand Review. 
uh, Taylor Pierce uh, in the, the 22nd Iowa uh, was, was already working on the regimental history for the 22nd Iowa uh, on the way to the parade. Um, Dan Eldridge uh, was a New Hampshire soldier who was, was grievously wounded at the, uh, the Battle of Deep Bottom uh, in, in Virginia in, in 1864, had two pieces of, of rebel lead painfully wedged between the tendons uh, in his left arm, and uh, began working on this, this regimental history, uh, thought that it would be a, a brief sketch, no more than 12 pages of fool's cap, he suggested, and, and just started writing uh, and, and daily work um, in 1865 and 66 and even into 67 uh, brought that uh, regimental history to more than 600 pages. Uh, and, I mean, it's fascinating to think about. Uh, here's a, a veteran who's, who's not silenced right by his pain, but quite literally writes through it. Uh, every time he put, puts a word on the page, uh, that, that rebel lead is, is, is pressing against, um, against the tendons in his left arm. Um, these men uh, wrote through the experience. They shared them. Uh, they, in some ways, became historians. Uh, they would uh, have a network of, of their old regimental comrades and uh, would ask them to review drafts of manuscripts, ask them to contribute uh, leaves from their diaries and, and copies of letters um, so that they could triangulate evidence um, in these, these histories. They're very sophisticated works. Uh, there's, there's not been... I think enough scholarship done uh, on on the regimental history as a genre, um, and uh, it's it's really one of the the great sites of of memory uh, for these for these veterans. You mentioned the the soldier who's the wounded soldier writing about this, and if if I didn't ask you about the the phenomenon of the the wounded veteran, the legless and armless veteran, I would be guilty of the same thing that the civilians of the North. <laughs> Uh, you say we're guilty of, of averting their eyes. They don't want to see or talk about, uh, you know, thank you for your service, but we don't want to see that that maimed body in public. Right. Uh, uh, t- talk about that that aspect. Well, we know that uh, there are more than uh, 30,000 uh, Union veterans that returned north missing an arm or a leg. Uh, those are the official numbers in the Surgeon General's report. Uh, of course, those numbers are notoriously problematic. Uh, the Surgeon General's office did not keep records of amputations uh, for the first 18 months of the war. Uh, and, and once they began keeping those records, of course, they were um, incomplete. Um, so I speculate in the book that there are in excess of, of uh, 50,000 men who come home uh, in this uh, condition, having lost a, uh, lost a limb. They become almost to a man uh, the most vocal um, and the most articulate uh, veterans because, in a sense, they you know as they understand they apprehend that their bodies are you know indisputable evidence of of the war. Uh, they're very compelling war ruins, um, and they they write um, and they they go into into public. They refuse to wear prosthetic appliances. Many of them. Uh, and they, they sit for photographs that prominently display their exposed stumps. They participate in 1865 and 1867 in, in left-handed uh, writing contests uh, that uh, ask them to prepare essays uh, exploring any topic, and, and the topics that they explore are uh, very often those related to the themes of emancipation and freedom uh, and union. Uh, they... 
become these these vocal exponents of of what Barb Gannon and others have called the the one cause, uh, and uh, they become problematic for these civilians who again just want to dismiss them as you know the, the honorably scarred, um, and then and then quickly look the other way, uh, but they they will not go quietly. I remember coming across the the left-handed uh, penmanship contest uh, files at the Library of Congress uh, when, when researching the Army of the Cumberland, Army of the Ohio, mm-hmm. and some of them, as you say, they, they it was just supposed to be penmanship. They could copy a, a text if they wanted, but they wrote about their experiences, some of them, and there are some great accounts of of, uh, uh, of service in the Civil War written by those those people. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when you talk about numbers, that brings up something that that, that I, I found myself asking. Uh, your book describes the, the those who are wounded, uh, those who are unable to adjust psychologically, those who end up uh, homeless or uh, alcoholic or suicidal. Uh, you talk about these soldiers' asylums or soldiers' homes that were built uh, for those who really could not live in in the the rest of the world mm-hmm. and if if a person read just your book and knew nothing else about the union army and veterans one might get the impression that this was true of most veterans how representative is this sample is, is there a sense surely there had to be some veterans maybe even majority who did reintegrate into society more smoothly Oh sure, and and it is not at all the intent of of the book to suggest that this was uh, the experience. Right, mm-hmm. um, there are those who uh, return home and they are um, are perfectly able to resume their their pre-war lives uh, and their pre-war occupations, and uh, that are very much like the the veterans that Gerald Linderman and others have described that that hibernate, that are relatively passive. Um, that even more than that live uh, productive uh, lives and and uh, very prominent and successful uh, lives. So I certainly don't want uh, readers to come away with with the impression that this is the story, right? But I think it is the crucial story that our, our previous accounts have have left out, and it's it's nearly impossible to, uh, of course, quantify this. Um, Phenomenon in any way, although I will say that it's, you know, remarkably consistent. Um, anywhere, anywhere you, um, anywhere you go, you will find uh, these these veterans who are unable to to readjust. Whether it be in the big urban areas, in the the rural areas of the Midwest, uh, their experiences are are remarkably similar. It's a national problem whose dimensions, uh, if anything, we have underestimated, uh, right? But in a larger sense, I think. Um, you know the real problem is that we the way that we think about reintegration right i mean this is reintegration and and demobilization uh is something that afflicts uh every uh civil war veteran and um, you know we've we've not done a a good enough job i think uh to recognize the the range of um, the range of problems uh, that that attended that uh, process. So uh, there are uh, no doubt in the book um, many extreme examples uh, of that process. But I think those extreme examples uh, serve to remind us that this is a um, a, a wide, uh, multifaceted uh, problem that even today we still 
don't really have our, our, our hands around. This is outside your topic, of course. Uh, the Confederate experience, has it been documented by anyone, uh, or is anyone working on it that you know of uh, in any way to resemble what you've done here? I do know of, of one, um, it's actually a completed dissertation uh, that's being revised into a book at the moment. A very talented young historian, a student of, of Joe Glattar's, uh, by the name of David Wheelyard, uh, who teaches up in, uh, in Minnesota at a small uh, college in Minnesota. He's uh, done a similar study uh, on the Confederate side, which is, of course, um, much more difficult to, to document because the, the records um, uh, really aren't as, as rich uh, as, as the northern records uh, prove to be. Um, I will say that you know, the Confederate veterans' experience has always been... Um, kind of rendered in the way that I rendered the Union veterans' experience, mm-hmm. uh, right, that they uh, return home um, defeated, emasculated, um, unable to, to rebuild their lives. Uh, and what, what strikes me about that, um, just by way of, of contrast, is that, um, of course, Confederate veterans return home to a population that understands keenly uh, what war is uh, and what this war was about, um, and that needs to find a way, um, very much like the veterans, to, to make sense of defeat, to explain uh, defeat. Uh, and I, I think the way that the southern civilians swaddle um, returning Confederate soldiers in the narratives of the lost cause almost immediately is a marked contrast to the way that northern civilians uh, treat returning Billy Yanks, uh, which is basically to say, you won the war, now, now get over it. Um, there is, is much more of a sense that Confederate veterans have the cultural space that they need in the South to share their stories, to become uh, recognized, um, uh, recognized in, in defeat, um, but recognized um, as having fought for a, a cause that would, would ultimately, uh, ultimately prevail. Um, that was not the, decidedly not the case in a, in a paradoxical sense with, with Billy Yank. One of the, the final irony as we come to our last minute here, uh, as you get near the end of the book, uh, we see the 1913 reunion at Gettysburg, and then the, uh, the First World War breaks out. And mm-hmm. now, f- however seriously one might have taken these soldiers and their complaints about politics or their... Uh, impact on society. Uh, they're not only quaint after 1913, but really irrelevant after 1917. The Doughboys, and you know, of course, veterans' issues become a, a major uh, cause with the World War of Un- veterans and the Bonus Army and so on. But uh, the the Civil War guys just just get broomed off the stage. That's right, it's, and. And to add to that kind of pathetic irony is, is the fact that there is some recognition among policymakers um, that we need to avoid with the returning doughboys the experience of the Civil War veteran. Um, and he becomes kind of caricatured, right, as the, the problem of the pensioner, it's known as. Uh, let's, and there are a lot of editorials in, in, uh, immediately after the First World War. Let's avoid this problem. Um, and we need to address uh, the infrastructural issues that um, you know prevented uh, the quick and easy payment of pensions. Uh, we we don't want this you know kind of drag 
uh, on, on society. We don't want the, the activism of, of, of the union veteran. Um, and so in some ways, I think you might um, successfully argue that union veterans are really the authors of our modern notion of, of veterans' rights, uh, that military service opens a, a contract with the federal government for uh, post-war care. Uh, and they began to articulate that ideology uh, which is, of course, a, a, a complete uh, um, departure from the, the classical Republican ideology. They begin to articulate that around their Grand Army campfires, and um, you begin to see that implemented uh, in a fitful way after World War One, but certainly um, after World War II, um, those notions begin to um, translate uh, themselves into policy. By which time the last Civil War veterans, uh, are uh, the very last ones, are about to leave the scene. And so we must leave the scene today. We're out of time. Uh, I've been talking today with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. Listeners, you'll want to take a look at this. It opens your eyes to an aspect of the war that has not been written about uh, as it should have been, uh, but is now, and uh, you'll like it. And Brian, thanks for being on the show. Jerry, thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.